0: Welcome back to the Naked Security Podcast, Season 2, Episode 9. I'm Alice, the producer. I'm back on the mic today, as unfortunately, we don't have Anna Braiding. I'm joined by software's experts, Mark Stockley. Hi. Welcome back. Thanks very much. P-Ducklin.
1: Hello, folks. P-Ducky.
0: And we also have a special guest, Greg. Is Welcome, Greg.
2: Hi. Thanks so you for having
0: haven't me. been? Oh, very softly spoken there on the mic.
2: I'm I'm pretending. Normally I sound really nerdy.
0: It's all right. <laughs> it'll come out as we go.
2: <laughs> yeah, they said there's <laughs> no way you're going to keep this up for 45 minutes. I could try. Hang on, I'll go back to my seat. <laughs> <very good. laughs> yeah.
0: So you haven't been on the podcast since season one. What do you think of our new setup?
2: It's really comfy. Uh, sadly, no one can see me right now, but I am. I I've got my legs stretched out. I, this is a wonderful place to be.
1: We were planning not to let you out. We're just going to lock the door oh, leave you here. in, and
2: then next week when we come to the podcast, you'll be here. That's really fun. I like how my mental state's going to progressively get worse each oh, episode. Everyone there's a just small gap under the door. It starts off with me weeping. Oh, we can, can slide, slide fresh through air. pizzas. Could you? Yeah. Okay. That's yeah, The cool toppings would stay though. on the other yeah, side very, of the door, but the pizza would pizza. make it through.
1: That's a well-known server room technique. I know you're not allowed food in there, but you just slide them under the door. What
0: server room? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Horizontal food delivery.
2: Horizontal
0: food delivery. That's why pizzas are flat. So Greg,
2: horizontal food delivery? Sorry,
0: sorry to steal you away from the food chat, but so for those who don't know you, could you just give a little overview of your role at Sophos?
2: Sure. Uh, I'm on the product team. I'm one of the senior managers. Uh, I'm responsible for two areas of our kind of uh, product groups, the uh, Sophos Central Cybersecurity Platform. Uh, Radio voice there, and um, also uh, responsible for uh, Sophos Labs uh, and sort of the communications from Sophos Labs. So, yeah, it's it's a lot of responsibility. I have no idea how I landed it, but I thoroughly enjoy it. Uh, So, yeah, amazing. So, Alice, Alice, I have a
3: question for you. I couldn't help noticing that you've got your own microphone this week. Are you scared? (laughs) I am. I'm always a little scared, but more scared this week. (laughs)
0: Um,
3: But I thought we would take advantage of the fact that you've got a mic in front of you Mm -hmm. to ask you a question. So you're the newest member of our team. You've been with us, what, six or seven months now?
0: Nine months. Nine months? Yeah. I'm just
3: contracting in it January. in my mind. I know. So obviously you came to us from the travel industry, so yeah, you've had a bit of similar. a kind of baptism of fire with cyber security. Yes. Um, what what our, our listeners won't realise is that you are sort of every person. Sometimes when we talk about uh, different subjects and you can bring in a perspective right. of, you know,
0: it's a very kind way of putting it, Mark. What's, what's it like? <laughs> Someone out who there? doesn't know about what's it. It's like
2: being normal,
0: right? Yeah. <laughs> it is interesting.
3: So, what I wanted to know is, what's been the most surprising thing for you coming into cybersecurity? What have you? What I want to say, what have you learned? But that's not that's not quite what I mean, like, right?
0: Well, yeah, I came from a very sort of sexy, glamorous industry. I came from travel, but I came from high-end luxury travel. So you moved from one really sexy industry into another equally sexy industry. I mean, an even sexier one, let's be honest. (laughs) But um, yeah, so it's really, really different. And I was terrified coming into cybersecurity because it's so different. And I'm used to working in a really visual um, space, you know. And so it was really different coming into a really kind of I guess, more corporate environment. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that really surprised me is that I used to be quite scared about all the terminology and all these different words. It's almost like a different language initially. But actually what it comes down to is some really basic security practices that everybody can really like put in place without too much thought so when we're talking to naked security users it's all about proper passwords and two-factor authentication yeah and then when we had peter on last week talking about securing your rdp servers it came down to the exact same very basic points of security um and so i think actually when you strip everything back and it comes to as a user what can i do it's actually much simpler than i thought initially yeah Pleasantly
2: great, surprised. We had a great conversation, I think, when because we, we had a team meeting out in uh, the wonderful South Spain, right? Right. And um, you were talking about how it was like, because in the travel industry, it's quite easy to do a lot of the, the marketing because it's yeah. just have a nice photo of a place and, and put it out there. Mm-hmm. It kind of sells itself, right? right? How have you found that transition from being able to just put out nice pictures to... I mean, you can't put out a nice picture of Spectre or Meltdown. It's these esoteric concepts. How are you finding that?
0: I think it's really kind of been a challenge. But, I mean, Mark, you've noticed. I kind of use Mark and Duck as my kind of, like... I don't know how to describe it in a nice way, but I use them as as my techies. And so actually you'll see on our Instagram, I do use a lot of beautiful imagery and I do use a lot of travel photography or like food photography. And it's because we're talking about how to stay safe on social media or when you're traveling or when you're in a cafe. And rather than doing what a lot of other brands do and showing a picture of the router, I'm showing a picture of the cafe that you're sitting in when you're using the Wi-Fi or the plane that you're sitting on when you're travelling and I think you just have to be a lot more imaginative but yeah, I'm, I'm used to just having a drone footage of Bora Bora and just posting it with not much thought. So. Yeah. Well,
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I need to get an Instagram account. It turns yeah, out. you need to follow turns us on out,
0: Instagram at turns out out I'm not hip enough.
2: I didn't know it was a thing. Is that where all the kids are at? God, that sounds wrong. Could you please look that <laughs> Keeping that in. Yep. So, up. well,
0: I, I guess, unfortunately, we'll have to move away from me talking about travel. And we'll start with you, Greg. Over the weekend, a lot of nerds were unhappy, like me, because they couldn't play World of Warcraft. So yes. what, what <laughs> happened, tell us the story. Yeah,
2: you must tell me all about how World of Warcraft Classic's going, by the way. Really um, well. So, yeah, so, so there seems to be uh, a bit of a kerfuffle. There was a group that... Uh, Uh, We're going out and doing a distributed denial of service attack against uh, quite an array of services. Um, They started off kind of uh, attacking Wikipedia and trying to take down a a whole variety of servers. It started off kind of mostly in EU and Africa, Middle East, but Mm -hmm. they slowly started scaling up and just going after every Wikipedia server that they could. Um, I guess I should probably unpack what we mean by like a distributed denial of service attack, because I think we in the cybersecurity industry, we have the kind of privilege of just that's a common term. But not everyone might know about that. and I, it's a nice analogy. Imagine a cafe, right? And A distributed denial of service attack is like having lots and lots and lots of people turn up at that cafe that aren't here to get a coffee, but they all line up in the queue and the, at, at the bar where you know to try and go say, "Hey, can I have a coffee?" But then they go, "Ah, nah, never mind," and walk away. And this queue of people floods the available service, right? The cafe, and it kind of denies anyone that really just wants to come and get a coffee, right? So that's kind of what a distributed denial of service attack is. It's lots and lots okay. of distributed devices on the internet out there attacking, basically just going to a web server, but they don't, they're not going there for a legitimate reason. They're not going to read the updates on Emma Watson's fancy Wikipedia article. Why on earth I went to that Wikipedia article? You've read my, my and, mind. I know. <laughs> no idea. Um, so yeah, so, that, so they started off just going after Wikipedia. And when I say they, there was this uh, Twitter handle that popped up uh, called UK Drillers, uh, which is odd. Driller is like a slang term Let me from guess, London. was there a Z in that? There wasn't. There was. There is an X on their second account after their first one got suspended. But like a Drillers, like a gunman. So uh, it was a really strange Twitter handle. But they were basically saying, like they were telling everyone ahead of them doing the attacks, "Hey, gonna be taking down Wikipedia in 30 minutes, just to oh. let you know." Lots of smiley faces. It was. It was really odd. Um, and then they, after going after Wikipedia, they then started going after Twitch servers, and they were specifically targeting um, regional servers so they could take down Twitch streamers streaming their games. So I had a bunch of friends on Twi- uh, Twitch that were annoyed that they weren't able to watch certain streamers. They went after, yeah, they went after Blizzard's World of Warcraft servers, Overwatch servers, another online game, uh, and just caused a bunch of chaos for a few days. Um, it was just odd, though, because you rarely see a group actually. A, climb out on Twitter and be like, hey, it's us. They set up a website as well, like drillers.info, which was very short-lived, which pointed to their new Twitter handle after they got suspended, which was drillers then with an X at the end, very quickly suspended as well. Um, And then, uh, thankfully, I guess, it wasn't really that long-lived. Like A a denial-of-service attack only lasts as long as the attackers bothered to do it. Right. right. So at some point, either they got bored or they stopped having money for the bot that they were paying for access to. Maybe their mums made them go to bed. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, it does it does reek of the typical script kiddie kind of attack, but eventually it just stops. You and know, so once it, they stop.
0: Your tea's ready.
2: It's like, oh, sorry, BRB. <laughs> Wikipedia so is that comes back quite online.
0: unusual then? Something like Wikipedia, you would assume, would have quite a lot of security around it. Is it really surprising that they're able to take down Wikipedia? It, a group of maybe school kids. In their bedroom
2: yeah that i mean that is it is an odd one right and, and, and wikipedia eventually started sort of shifting over to cloudflare's uh ddos protection all their mitigation stuff so they started moving part of their ip address ranges into cloudflare's network cloudflare have a load of servers and they have some clever technology so they but, can just but even before
3: stuff. they do that yeah i mean wikipedia it is it's big it's a big website yeah, like, must mm-hmm. be like go to your coffee to shop se- analogy It's a second. Right? it's a bit like you know, your coffee shop is in an aircraft hangar. Do you know what I mean? You can you yeah. can you can handle a big queue before you get into trouble yeah. if you're Wikipedia.
0: Yeah, and is it worrying for much smaller websites if they can target Wikipedia? Then I mean, teeny tiny small companies must feel quite vulnerable.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is, it's often been used by like hacktivists. DDoS has always been one of the kind of go tos where people are angry at a service or a company, right. and they'll. DDoS their server. But like I said, it, it's not really an effective attack, right? Because it only lasts as long as they're willing to pump, you know, traffic, network traffic at those computers to take them down, you know, to, to deny the service. So it's something that it, it comes and goes, but it's never long lived, right? It was just a temporary, uh, you know, uh, pain in the, the metaphorical derriere of Wikipedia. I like how I, I can watch my words there. I don't know if there's any <laughs> children listening to this podcast. At least you l- learn a rude <laughs> word I, feel, from
3: I feel comfortable in saying no. There yeah. are no yeah. children. <laughs> okay. to this podcast. So, Greg,
1: do you think that this was just kind of playground showing off, as it were, that hey, let's let's pile Wikipedia with bogus traffic so it can't keep up for regular people. Let's go after the gamers, let's diss our buddies or our non-buddies. Or do you think these guys were youngsters who were kind of if you like, advertising with the idea that they could go and offer DDoS or booter for hire services, which we have seen in the past. young Comparatively, young, wannabe cyber criminals saying, hey, pay us some money, and we'll take out a website you don't like. And here's the proof. We Dedosed Wikipedia, we dedosed World of Warcraft,
2: etc. I mean, certainly having a bit of experience in, in marketing, it's a pretty good claim. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty good claim What's to be able to say, words? yeah, it's pretty good claim to be able to say, uh, you know, our botnet was able to take down Wikipedia, World of Warcraft, Twitch. I mean, if you were selling your services, that's a great way to advertise yourselves. Took take down some of the world's most popular kind of uh, platforms. So yeah, I mean, it could be we we can but speculate on this one. It was a strange, short-lived attack, but I think the strangest part was just seeing the fact that DDoS is still to this day cause havoc amongst what you would think would be some of the biggest services out there. Just
3: just on that on that, I mean, it's great marketing up to a point because I think one of the the police arrived. Yeah, one of the (laughs) things one of the things that often goes along with this is it's Greg home. (laughs) (laughs) But but that's the reality, isn't it? Like they they. this has happened in the past where you see uh, like DDoS attacks are kind of the point of entry for a lot of would-be hackers because they're much easier. You can do something dramatic much more easily than, it's much easier than sort of breaking into a server and actually finding some data or exposing something. Um you do often see this sort of flurry of activity and noise and lots of people peacocking and showing off. And then about a month later, there's a rash of stories about the FBI knocking on people's (laughs) doors at two o'clock in the morning. And, you know, Oh, this, this hacker from, you know, said hacking group has decided that he doesn't want to spend 24 years in jail and is now helping the FBI with their, you know, investigate the other members of the group. And that is, that happens so often. So it's great marketing
2: for a (laughs) while. Um, but until someone loses an eye. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, there was uh, on Twitter, of course, the 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 brigade happened, where everyone became uh, internet cyber sleuths and trying to identify who it was. Always fun to watch. I always love engaging in anything like that, just to see what they what was, what was brought up. We had like people finding YouTube accounts and then linking that to Facebook accounts. So people were like, potentially doxxed. Um, so, yeah, I, you can never really hide from these things. If you're going to do something as, as big and blazing as a, as a DDoS and then go and create multiple Twitter accounts and a website, all trying to attribute it back at you. You're just creating this web of an easy trail, you know, an easy trail that's going to inevitably lead. You know, I, law enforcement I have to say, though, to on doors. that,
3: though, I, I am almost as kind of repulsed by the response in that. In that kind of situation, the sort of vigilante response, as I am by the attacks in the first place, because there's, you know, you get this sort of confidence in crowds where everybody is egging everybody else on and, you know, picking up on these sort of threads of information. And it's very easy for those groups to be wrong. And it's often very difficult for those groups to realise that they're wrong because they have this sort of giant confirmation bias going on. And we saw that in the aftermath of the Boston Marathon bombings, with very serious consequences. You know, there's all these online sleuths saying that they've identified who the bombers are, and they haven't identified the bombers at all. And that's that's a seriously, like,
1: suddenly there are consequences. Um, well, that can actually mess up a court case, can't yes. it? Yes. When people go and stir the waters and reveal information that the law requires to be kept private for the sake of somebody who's accused... Whole whole court cases against people yeah. who might well be guilty can just fall apart because somebody blabbed at the wrong point.
2: Yeah.
0: But Greg, I guess with things like this, because it's just users of the platforms, there's not really a lot that you can do if something that you're using gets taken down in an attack like this. But is there any advice that you can give to people?
2: I mean, one. Don't ever engage or, or do these things. Like if you, mm. someone's inviting you to join in a, in a DDoS, because I mean, back in back in the old days on like things like 4chan, um, was it the low orbital ion cannon? What's it called? <laughs> it was yeah. it was low orbital ion. Slo- low, yeah, yeah. Loic was it? Yes, yeah. this like it was a tool which people on 4chan were saying, hey, download this. You run this tool on your computer. We'll tell you what website to put in the bo- the box press the launch low orbit ion cannon or whatever and it will DDoS attacks. And they're basically I mean, because a DDoS is it's just getting lots of people to overwhelm a service. So either that could be through bots, compromised computers, it could be just individuals choosing to take part in this. But ultimately it's it in many cases this leads to convictions. This can lead to criminal records. It's right. dumb. It feels like fun. It feels great to be part of a big thing like that. But yeah, if someone is asking you to engage I think, in a DDoS I think don't just play.
3: Avoid joining mobs. Yeah. Avoid joining <laughs> mobs of people indulging in DDoS. Avoid joining mobs of people who are going after people who've been indulging in DDoS. Right. Like, just avoid being in a you mob. Know, it's like that old thing like, you know, you're not stuck in traffic, you are traffic. <laughs> just don't. Don't
1: be that, Mark. A particularly relevant analogy in the case of network traffic overload.
3: Mm.
0: Cool. Thanks, Greg. So, Mark, moving on to you. Firefox, last week we talked about them moving to DNS over HTTPS by default. And then this week they've introduced something called the Firefox private network. That sounds a bit like a VPN. Is that correct?
3: Yeah, it is a bit like a VPN. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it's sort of convenient to talk about it being a VPN, but it's not technically a VPN. We'll get into that in a little while. Um, So what they've done is this isn't part of the browser proper. This is part of uh, Mozilla's test pilot program, which is this kind of rough around the edges, beta-ish thing that they're doing, uh, which seems to be focused around things to do with privacy. And the latest, most eye-catching thing that they have done is they've created this thing called the Firefox Private Network. It's it's a, a beta for a Firefox extension. So it's not part of the browser itself. It's a plugin that you add to the browser. And what it does is it encrypts your network traffic. Oh, well, no, so it encrypts your browsing traffic. And that's where it's different from a VPN. So a VPN encrypts all of your network traffic, whereas this is just concerned with your uh, web requests. And so the way that they're sort of positioning this is that it helps protect you from hackers lurking in plain sight on public Wi-Fi connections. So the analogy is always the, the going back to coffee shops, Greg. You know, you're in a coffee shop, you join the, the, the open public Wi-Fi in the coffee shop, you've got HTTP requests whizzing around in the air, and if anybody else uh, wants to see what you're doing, then they can, and if the owner of the uh, Wi-Fi hotspot wants to see what you're doing, they can. And so what this does, like a VPN, it creates a sort of encrypted tunnel between you and a server somewhere else, and it sends, your traffic through that, and then your traffic kind of emerges onto the internet from that point. So when you go visit a website, it looks to the website as if you're coming from the server, which is the point where you enter the internet, rather than from that coffee shop. And all of your traffic is just kind of, as Duck would say, shredded cabbage to anybody who's trying to intercept it between you and that uh, server.
1: But Mark, this isn't really about... just about coffee shops is it the point is that your traffic then essentially skips over your ISP because a lot of people are concerned about living in countries where ISPs are required to monitor certain types of traffic and presumably it also skips over any country level firewall that might be in place in the place where you live so there's an element of there's a sort of maybe a deeper element of privacy here. Is that the idea? Uh, well, it depends who
3: you talk to. So I think that's certainly something that you can achieve with something like a VPN or with a Firefox private network, uh, just purely in terms of their marketing, the way that they're uh, positioning this is using the coffee shop analogy. So they they they're kind of selling this off the back of two things. One is it's going to be difficult for people in coffee shops to snoop on you. And the other one is it reduces the amount of information available to advertisers. So when you visit a website... Um, your IP address is going to be obscured, so your country of origin is going to be obscured. And also because you this uh, service is provided via Cloudflare, and so when you log on uh, to the Firefox private network, you connect to whatever the nearest Cloudflare data center is. So your IP
1: address is, will sort of skip around as you move around as well. So what you're saying is essentially instead of being an individual who can be identified and targeted when you reach a website, you're kind of like you've joined a giant mob. Which you're <laughs> I mean, sort of, right? But in the a good, way. In a good yeah, way. You're sort of you are yeah. hiding amongst many other people who appear to come from the same servers. So that's a good point, that it's not so much about the privacy at the coffee shop, which you can get by just using HTTPS. It's about the fact that, the people at the other end of the connection see you as kind of Mr. or Ms. Average, yeah, in terms of where your network traffic emerges, rather than knowing, oh, it's you, Mark, in this suburb, in this town, from this router at this house, which is how you tend to show up when you when you browse regularly. Although, although
3: you have to think, like, I think that that's of some limited use because obviously, if you visit a website mm. and that website gives you cookies, and then it's using those cookies to identify you. Well, you keep those. Those aren't with your uh, VPN provider or your Firefox Private Network provider. Those are on your
1: browser. So, so the Firefox Private Network is only about the encryption. It doesn't also does it also provide things like cookie flushing and other kinds of a browser anonymization, or is that a, are those separate features in the browser? So
3: far as I know, those are separate features. Right. Um, so this is, a, and interestingly enough, I went and had a look at the Cloudflare website to see what they had to say about this service as well. And they make it very clear that this is not for the avoidance of geographical restrictions on content, that that is explicitly not a goal. So there's, yeah. a, slight, there's a slight difference yeah. between the way that Firefox
1: are presenting this and the way that Cloudflare are presenting this. Because a lot of people do buy VPNs for that purpose, don't they? They don't yes. really care about the privacy. They just care that, for example, if they're in the US, they can't watch BBC shows so they pretend to be in the uk
0: so most websites use https already and now that um firefox has introduced dns over https what is the difference when, why do people need this additional vpn
3: i think actually that's a really good question because if you'd if we'd if they'd done this sort of five six seven years ago then um it could potentially have made a huge difference but actually https adoption which is you know uh, an encrypted connection between you and a website has really taken off in the last five years or so. And I think it's about 80% of web traffic is now encrypted over HTTPS. And also, um, with Firefox introducing this uh, DNS over HTTPS, mm. DNS requests will also be encrypted. And so, in terms of your browsing traffic, that leaves just this kind of 20% of HTTP requests. And that's actually, that window is closing pretty rapidly. Um, so I, the way I see this is it, it's kind of belt and braces. It's ensuring that your um, your all your bases are covered, right. and so you don't have to be kind of manually checking to make yeah. sure that you're uh, you're not using HTTP. Um, but I think actually for for privacy conscious users, it's probably going to be fairly limited benefit. yeah. Because if you're already using something like HTTPS Everywhere or HTTP Nowhere, which are plugins that prevent you from using HTTP and force you to use HTTPS, um, then the extra encryption doesn't give you very much. So then it's a question of, okay, well, do I want to bypass my ISP for some reason? Um, It's
2: about trust ultimately, isn't it? Because you're you're choosing to say, I trust CloudFlare and Mozilla's sort of network here. And I want to take that access to that network with me everywhere right so yeah. the idea is that instead of me having to trust well, everywhere
1: the, provided you're browsing
2: yeah yeah i'm browsing with this web browser but it's that idea of like instead of having to trust the coffee shop's wi-fi or then having to go and trust the hotel's wi-fi or my neighbor's wi-fi or or you know wherever i'm taking my machine my browser is always going to be connecting back to that same network of Cloudflare, and mozilla yeah. and yeah. i can kind of say well look i trust them probably more than i might trust a lot of these other networks that i connect to and th-
0: trust is a really important thing here so is that firefox trying to position themselves as the most trusted browser in terms of privacy?
2: Yeah, I, I think it is. That,
3: that There seems to be a definite um, direction of travel for them here. I mean, I've written about this a few times in the last few years. Every 18 months or so, we do a trustworthy browser poll um, just to see, you know, where are people at in terms of uh, the browser that they use and how they feel about them. Um, you know, I've been working in the, with the web for about 20 years now, and I think browsers will more or less feature complete 10 or 15 years ago they, they haven't changed very much in terms of what they do and since then they've largely been, been competing in the areas of security and privacy and i think that uh firefox is their biggest competitor now is uh, google chrome and obviously google is an advertising company and i think that firefox have spotted the fact that because google is an advertising company there's only so far that they can go mm-hmm. in terms of getting in the way of ads and tracking and things yes. like this Because they're stepping on their own toes if they do. And Microsoft spotted this as well. We saw this with, um, uh, there was a technology called Do Not Track, which didn't really get off the ground uh, five, six, seven years ago. Microsoft embraced it very, very enthusiastically. It looked like purely because it was a way of sort of driving a wedge into Google because it was difficult for Google to embrace Do Not Track. And I think what we're seeing here with all these things coming out of Firefox is, you know, they're saying, actually, that's what our users want. And they can really pick up the ball and run with it in a way that Chrome, Chrome can't. So yeah, I think there's a bit of yeah. competitive, yeah. Um, you know, I think it's a win-win for privacy. But I do think that there's a bit of um, uh, sort of inter-organization, yeah. Mozilla have competition been working on, on this. On
2: here. Um, they've been working on this kind of brand redesign for a while. I, I'm I'm going to be honest, I'm a bit of a Mozilla fanboy. Kind of have been since like 2003. I'm an old Netscape Navigator user and I, I then used Mozilla uh, Phoenix like 0.8 so I've been using Firefox for a long time and it's been interesting because they've always kind of positioned themselves as like the privacy browser but it was never really like a big part of their brand it was just like a message that they would share with you when you were downloading it you know that that the browser wasn't sharing information it wasn't run by an advertising company but I think they've recognized that People are looking to go out there. They want to buy privacy. Like Apple have started doing this. Well, I want to, yeah, like I want to spend my money and I want to invest in something and an organization that, you know, believes that I should have privacy and doesn't want to encroach on that. So it's kind of this kind of commoditizing privacy as a a product. And that's kind of what Mozilla are doing is they're sort of redefining their entire brand. So I, I think that's what's interesting to see is that now brands like Mozilla, like Apple are saying, hey like people want privacy why don't we make those products why don't why can't that be something that people can avidly go and say look i specifically want to buy something that keeps me safe keeps me private isn't tracking me isn't selling my data and and, and making that clear and that seems to be kind of what they're doing with all these firefox features to make it really obvious look you can buy our virtual network or sorry was it the private network service mm-hmm. and that's an add-on so you can invest in privacy and if that's what you're looking for
1: Mark, well, there's a There's a saying that those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it, often misquoted. Now, there's absolutely nothing new about this, and lots of browsers have tried it in the past. Mm. If you you remember the old BlackBerry days, they actually used a very similar approach, but for the purposes of acceleration. The Opera mini-browser did the same thing. You had yep. an encrypted tunnel back to their proxy. They fetched the web page, reworked it so it was stripped down and didn't take a lot of uh, mobile network bandwidth. I think the Kindle did something similar, Exactly, a yeah. Exactly. Uh, Kindle Fire had a similar thing. And obviously that did provide an element of VPN-ishness or private browsing in that you weren't browsing through the coffee shop or even your works network. And yet people kind of reacted to that very badly saying... So you mean that from now on, instead of me spreading my my browsing insecurity through perhaps dozens of different networks as I wander around and kind of staying a little bit hidden, Opera or BlackBerry or whoever it was are going to see all of my traffic. Mm. So actually in the past, these kind of things sort of fell flat because people panicked about the centralization and the centralised control. Do you think that there's a that people should have a similar concern here, that if they turn this on, instead of actually spreading their insecurity, they're putting an awful lot of trust with one provider that's chosen by Mozilla, presumably for commercial reasons. Well, it's it's
3: a point we make whenever we talk about virtual private networks, and I think it's something that Greg sort of alluded to as well, which is just that idea that, the, the way that we like to think of it is that your VPN provider is basically your ISP. So you're not, all you're doing is you're exchanging where you place trust. And as you know, so sometimes it's you're displacing the trust that you normally put in your ISP and you're placing it in your VPN provider instead. Or as you were saying, sometimes you spread that trust around. So you go, okay, well, maybe there are some bad actors out there, but they only get a slice of the pie. They only get to see a slice of what I'm doing. But now I'm going to put all my faith in basically a different ISP. Um, You know, I'm not going to comment on you know cloudflare and whether they're a good choice or a bad choice there's no reason to assume that they're a bad choice they they seem to make all the right noises in terms of privacy and security the only the the sort of bigger question for me is more around centralization on the internet in general so your your choice of vpn is a decision for you if if i were really worried about kind of using encryption in coffee shops i would probably just go ahead and use the tor browser rather than firefox with a vpn because that is it's a bit like using a VPN but without trusting any one VPN provider you know again you're you're only giving any uh spreading the dislove as spreading it the dislove yeah so your yeah. your traffic is sort of um you know sliced and diced between uh, a bunch of different servers mm.
0: cool so duck moving on to you we're going to talk about a new side channel attack called netcat but before we get into the detail can you just explain what we mean by side channel
1: Yes, basically, a side-channel attack is where you observe how a system processes data, even though you can't see what that data is, and based on your observations, you're able, able to make inferences about what the data actually was and the classic example and this is a netcat is one is what's called a timing attack where you measure how long it takes for the system to do things and the classic example is that if you have a system that takes longer to log you in if you have a 16 character password Say, then, if you have a four-character password, then by measuring how long it takes somebody's login to go through, you can guess the length of their password, which is information that the system is not supposed to let you know. Right?
0: OK, great. So what what is it about Netcat that's different to that?
1: Well, first, probably worth saying by Netcat, a lot of our listeners will know Netcat is a very well-known, decades-old, uh, basically network packet generation tool this Mm -hmm. is a different thing the cat is all in capitals and it's short for network cash attack and the idea is that researchers at the free university of amsterdam have discovered that there's a feature in at least in some intel chipsets or network cards that essentially allows them to monitor on one network card via one network card that is attached to a server the timing, the rate at which network packets arrive on a second network card in the same server. And you think, well, big deal. They can tell that the network packets are coming, you know, sometimes they're three milliseconds apart, sometimes they're five, sometimes they're 105, big deal. Well, the problem is that there is a particular network protocol called SSH which is commonly used, Secure Shell, used for interactive logins, where the person at the other end is not a computer uploading a file, it's a person typing in Unix commands, so they're typing in ASCII characters and spaces and things like that. And it turns out that if you can measure accurately the time between two characters, there's some seminal research that suggests that you can infer what the person typed. Ah. For the simple reason, imagine if you're typing a word that you type a lot like the, then you'll probably type T-H-E much faster than you type a weird word like zymurgy that you've never typed before. And you never type faster if the before. characters are next to it's the last word in most dictionaries. I've um, the, <laughs> not got that far when checked. I read it. Trust me, he's <laughs> I certainly have. And the first word is not ardvark; it's ah, unsurprisingly. So, Duck, if I can interrupt
3: you yeah. there. So... I, I read the write-up on Naked Security, and if I've got this right, it sounds like an awful lot of things have to go right in order for this to be practical. That so is my
1: to... inference from reading the paper.
3: <laughs> so so yeah, I think you do, is it two network cards? You need to. The attacker needs to be on one of them. You kind of need to have exclusive access to that network card. And somebody else needs to be logging in on an SSH session on the other network card, and they need to be the only person using it, pretty much. And, That's what I assume have to be
1: typing in english and and so forth is that is that right yeah i i would imagine if you if if you if you have two ssh sessions going at the same time then they're not going to be able to determine they're just knowing network packets are arriving they're inferring that they're ssh ones because of the way they're arriving but if there's a whole load of other stuff coming in as you imagine there would be on a cloud server that's serving tens or hundreds or thousands of people at the same time so you're you're probably not going to fall victim to this is what you're saying i i I suspect that their demo is very looks as though it was very very carefully contrived with a server with two network cards one person on each typing at about the speed i'm saying it may the force be with you and you see them reconstructing disney for that one nevertheless they were able to do it.
0: So, Dirk, I can see why this is interesting, but why are we talking about it if it's very unlikely to happen? Why would someone do extensive research on it?
1: You mean, why would you go and measure this and say, right. under very, very careful circumstances, yeah. this can happen? Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of like the question of saying, you know, if you were if you were in where was it North Carolina in 1903 and you saw the Wright brothers trying all this <laughs> work with their plane, you went you flew 81 and a quarter metres. There's no future in this. Seriously, I can walk it faster and I don't need to bring this giant flying machine. Uh, Firstly, there's an element of because it's there. I think the main thing here is that the reason this attack is even theoretically possible is because of a feature that was added to Intel network cards, Intel server motherboards, if you like, that was designed to improve performance. So it's a reminder to us as the Free University of Amsterdam guys have done several times before you think of attacks like Spectrum, Meltdown, and that stuff. They're reminding us that sometimes when you try and improve performance, then you may introduce artifacts into the system that allow these side-channel attacks to happen. Like, let's say you felt, oh, we're taking too long for people to log in. It's taking too long to process passwords. So let's add a secret optimization that shorter passwords go through faster then you know that's something that where you might introduce a performance improvement that has a potential security downside. And that, I think, is what they're trying to bring to our attention. They're not trying to scare us witless yeah. that we should stop using cloud services. They even provide a mitigation. This relies on a feature of Intel chipsets called DDIO, data direct input-output, if you turn that off, this attack doesn't work. It depends on that feature. But I think what they're doing is they're just, like the Wright brothers are saying, hey, powered flight is possible, let's see where it goes. What they're saying is, in future, guys, when we're devising performance improvements, we need to make sure that they don't run at 90, potentially run at 90 degrees to security.
3: It reminds me of some of the discoveries that we see in cryptographic research. Absolutely, Where you see, you know that you'll have a hashing algorithm or an encryption, encryption algorithm or something like that, and somebody will demonstrate that, okay, well, you thought it was going to take a billion years to crack this hash. Well, guess what? It's not going to take a billion years. It's going to take 500 million years instead. Look what I've done. I've done an amazing thing. Now, practically, there's no value in that. But actually, what they've done is they've said, the model you thought you had isn't true. Mm. By finding a flaw in your model, I have shown that your model isn't quite what you thought it was. And so it may be that other people will find ways of speeding this kind of attack up, or it may be that this is just a kind of a pointer that, okay, well, if you don't understand your model as well as you thought you did, maybe there are other problems with your model too. But I do think as well with stuff like this, there's probably a great gob of fashion involved in this as well. Like side channel attacks and attacks on chipsets are really fashionable at the moment because of, meltdown and spectre and things like that so there's probably you know
1: there are phds to be had in this there's PhDs, maybe a bit absolutely. of grant funding to be had in this it's bear in mind that when obviously there's been some there's been some confusion over them calling the attack netcat where netcat is already a well-established name for a piece of software that may or may that sometimes yes. is used for good and sometimes <laughs> is used for bad and their justification is well we thought that was kind of cool and funny to give it an ambiguous name and anyway it ends with cat and who doesn't like cats that's their People
3: official explanation <laughs> oh, yeah but there's no there's like no cats. way that there's no way that somebody who's capable of doing that kind of research is not aware that there's a a utility called Netcat. We can, but there, hope just, it it up compl- to the mark. Is,
1: Oh no, they, they, they said that it was yeah. meant to be a bit, of, a bit of a play on words. And to go back to your idea about the billion years versus yeah. five hundred million years. Yes, it does sound as though at the moment, if you've got one person typing, maybe yep. you can. Uh, Maybe you can work out some, a few of the letter combinations that they type. So you can tell whether they typed LS to list files or RM to remove them. But of course, like with the crypto stuff, you're saying, well, it's supposed to take a billion years. Now it takes 500 million. What happens when computing equipment speeds up so much yep. that the billion years is reduced to one year? then the 500 million year equivalent suddenly becomes much more tractable, like a week or a month. And that's the problem here. And you only have to think that, what was it, 30 years ago, many of us were connecting to networks with networking equipment that ran at 1,000 bits per second, a modem. Now, the reason that this whole speed-up feature was put in by Intel is your standard server network card is running at 10,000 million bits per second so yeah systems get faster and therefore it's not surprising that attacks get faster as well and we need to take that into account at all times I get
2: the feeling there's a bunch of people using Dvorak keyboards out there now. That's feeling very smug, given that they can probably tell you're one, like big... <laughs> you one, one of them. Be honest. Are you one of them? I like how you think I'm actually that nerdy. Um, no, I've tried Dvorak. It was very hard. It also sucks because if you take a Dvorak keyboard... this is me revealing how <laughs> nerdy I am. If you take a Dvorak keyboard, like, and you start getting at it, and you go back to QWERTY, it's a nightmare. So you're that guy that's carrying around a Dvorak keyboard, and everyone's like, "What's up with your keyboard? Is that German or something?" Like, no, no, it's Dvorak, and then and then you have to reveal just how much you've descended into the Abyss of forever aloneness
1: there is another fantastic (laughs) solution to this particular attack which i have having the very first issue macbook 12 inch that came out with the very first butterfly keyboard is the chance that anybody (laughs) I I, I, I so badly on it anyway because the key trouble's so so tiny that all they'll do is figure my word this guy presses backspace a lot oh yeah yeah (laughs) So, yeah, it, because it's there is one reason to do this research. And, again, just a reminder that you, you might have said there's absolutely no way that just probing on one network card you can get data out with sufficient accuracy to make any kind of inferences about what's happening on the other network card. So if you're relying on the fact that that was physically impossible these guys have shown that it is possible and therefore as a as something to put into your threat model it does need to be taken into account
0: So we usually end with a little bit of a question round that we get on social media from our listeners, but we did a nice Q&A on Instagram the other day with Duck. Um, So I thought, Greg, as you're joining us today, I will put you in the hot seat. So our worldview is kind of in phishing and data breaches and passwords, but you're kind of in a different perspective over there. So it'd be interesting to understand what kind of trends you're seeing, if you can give us any insights on that.
2: Yeah, I mean, the big topic uh, of, of almost like the last five years has always been about machine learning, deep learning, AI, maths, magic um people are trying to understand see through the noise right there's all this confusion of is machine learning actually a real thing is it just it's, a con? It's prime hype curve stuff isn't right it? Yeah. yeah and and so that's kind of a lot of people are kind of like well is it this panacea where's it going and and the area i found really interesting this comes from a conversation i had with josh and, and it's something i it's been echoing in my head for weeks now is this idea of context I'm sorry, I mentioned someone called Josh. Josh Sachs is uh, our chief data scientist. He's uh, one of the most scary, brilliant individuals I've had the honour of getting to hang out with in this company. He's incredibly intelligent, incredibly articulate, and just every second yeah. with him I'm reminded just how dumb and I am. We'd like to get him on the show, it would be, He would do yeah. a better job than me, most <laughs> But he was talking to me about this idea of context. And so think of it this way. like Machine learning like an AI is always about trying to solve a problem. it's a simple problem usually like is this good or bad or uh, you know what I mean you you could use machine learning to go is this a dog or is it a cat you know that kind of stuff and so we're always trying to solve problems like is this good or bad but the problem is like like a human you don't build up your context on something just you know you you don't sorry you don't make your own decision-making based on a singular bit of context Like you go oh well is this dog or cat? well I'm just going to look at the color of its fur you look at all these different things and you build all these different models so what's been interesting for us for for context is how we're starting to glue together multiple machine learning models to, I say glue, but to get them to share information. And it's this slow, like everyone says, is Skynet happening? And it's like, no, but I start to see these glimmers of it where you have one machine learning model which has one worldview, another machine learning model that has another worldview. And now to try and solve these security problems, we need to make them talk and share information between each other. And it is like intelligence slowly emerging. So basically, I'm just spending all my night, all my nights just sort of rocking backwards and forth, sweating <laughs> profusely, uh, weeping, uh, and uh, and buying up every tinned good, baked beans that I can I, for the impending apocalypse. Yeah, I for one welcome our new robot overlords. <laughs> oh Actually, yeah, he always a kiss us,
1: isn't no. he? <laughs> <laughs> but Greg, wouldn't Sorry, you say that kiss-ass. the the I think one problem that machine learning has got, particularly in the cybersecurity industry, is there. You, you get people who tout it as the replacement for everything that's gone before because it makes everything else redundant, even though one of its prime features is actually to do the stuff that is inefficient and ineffective for humans to do so they can concentrate on the things that really matter, to build the next machine learning models that will take care of the fact that the rate at which we see new malware is increasing at some absurd scale.
2: I mean, from- yeah, uh, the, the, the idea that AI somehow makes obsolete every other cybersecurity technology that's come before it is is the marketing of companies that probably don't have a wealth of other old stuff and other (laughs) technology and research Um, as a vendor where we have one of the industry's leading data science teams that, I mean, literally, you know, Josh Sachs's team and, and has been working on the cyber genome project funded by DARPA. Like he, he, if you look at his, the public, the research that he's published, he's been at the top of his game for quite some time. And even Josh will happily tell you that machine learning is not the, the, the the answer for cybersecurity. In many cases, people use machine learning in the wrong places. Uh, It's, to be used in conjunction with other technology. AI is incredible when it's added to something else, right? So we have antivirus, and antivirus plus artificial intelligence means their ability to catch threats is incredible. You drop one or the other, you're still going to miss things. It's that conjunction of things. It's yeah, it's, it's building upon itself. It's
3: almost like you're saying defense in depth. Layered security. It's like that all the data just even continues. Kenneth, in. would you imagine it?
0: Well, thanks, uh, Greg, and thanks, Mark, and Duck.
3: Before we finish, oh, yeah. actually, I, I wanted to put you in the hot seat one last oh, time. All right. So I have another question for you. Earlier, we okay. were talking about uh, Firefox, um, and Firefox is quite a popular browser in our team and I've noticed right. that you're using Firefox as well Yeah. and I don't know if you did that before. I was just wondering if since you've come into a mm. cybersecurity company if you've changed any of the software that you use.
0: I did use Firefox before I think more because it was a smaller browser and I've always been someone who kind of advocates for the underdog. I didn't actually probably know why I was doing it. Um, in terms of software I've changed. I think when I joined Sofos, I was kind of overwhelmed by the amount of security we have to have on our work phones, on our work laptops with mm. Duo. we and password managers and that showed my ignorance when i joined but now that's such a normal part of my day yeah. that i have i have i use it on my personal phone on my personal laptop now um so yeah two-factor authentication <laughs> i so know you're we saying say it did actually
1: it, although it's inconvenient to it's, it's not, not that like bad, inconvenient, right? you know and actually exactly. like
0: things like facebook i'm not a big i mean obviously i'm a social media marketer so I, I like social media from a business perspective but personally i'm a really private person and so i don't use facebook um but i do have a facebook account and i've locked everything down on there deleted loads of mm-hmm. old content that i don't use it's got uh, multi-layers of uh, security now and those are the kind of things I would have thought I was being secure by just not using it but actually the account was sitting there dormant but probably easily accessible and so that's something that I've changed
2: So what you're saying is that our paranoia is pervasive and it's now become Absolutely. part of your life? Absolutely, I've
0: become even more paranoid but I'm probably more, I'm, you know, I'm aware of why I'm paranoid now <laughs>
1: <laughs> But you have a and you have a more fashionable tinfoil hat than the rest Absolutely.
0: of us Absolutely, yeah Mine's black foil <laughs>
2: Today I learnt tinfoil cool. hats are somehow fashionable no, yeah. no, Alice is, Correct. <laughs> mine. Alice is <laughs> okay. Okay. is. Okay, i, I, I the, the audience cannot see me just putting mine away.
0: So, just before we finish, where can we find you guys on social media? Mark Stockley. You can
3: find me at Mark Stockley on Twitter and at Internet of Hens on Twitter. Duck. I am
2: at Duckblog on Twitter and at P. Ducklin on Instagram. And Greg. Uh, you won't find me in many places, but you'll find me at SecBug on Twitter, where I say plenty of career-limiting things.
0: I'm at Ali Rouge <laughs> on Twitter, and we are at Naked Security on Twitter, Instagram. And you can follow us on Facebook. We'll be doing Facebook Lives every week that you can join in on Ask Us Questions live. And that's all for this week. Until next time, stay secure.
2: I should have said something.